I'd like to invite you to turn to uh, the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. And we're going to begin this morning a new series of uh, studies in this letter to Paul's dear friend, Timothy. According to Homer's Odyssey, when King Odysseus went off to fight the Trojan War, he left his young son Telemachus behind with a a wise friend of his by the name of Mentor. And uh, that's where our common noun, mentor, and actually we use it as a verb now, to mentor someone, came from. And I have to uh, ask myself, where are those older, wiser heads that can take on a a newcomer, uh, a supportive sage, who is willing to overshadow a, a beginner, spend time with him or her and help that young person grow to maturity, who will love and encourage and guide and uh, model the truth and call young believers to accountability. My, how we need that. If you're a young person and you don't have an older person who is admiring you, then you're, you're being hurt. Uh, we need that. I think it would be good for all of us to begin to pray that God would give us some younger person that we can invest our lives in. I think as we study this book, you'll see a wonderful example of what can actually happen when that takes place. Uh, Paul is a a premier example of a mentor. Uh, He first met this uh, young man to whom he addressed this letter. When he was on his first missionary journey, he made his way through a part of the world that we call Turkey today. And often the western end of modern-day Turkey was a little town called Lystra. That's where Timothy lived. He was about 11 or 12 years old. And uh, he sat at Paul's feet. And somewhere along the line, he received Christ, became Paul's uh, spiritual son. His father was a Greek, and the impression I get from reading between the lines is that he was a hard man, cold, distant, and disapproving, detached, maybe even absent from the family. Uh, Timothy was marked by that. He grew up to be a a fearful uh, person, very insecure. But he did have uh, a mother who was a devout Jewess. And from a very early age, she taught Timothy the scriptures, the only scriptures she had, which was our Old Testament. Paul says, from a a very early age, uh, Timothy, you've learned the scriptures, which are able to make you wise into salvation. Uh, I had a mother like that, uh, not a Jewish mother, but in, in some ways she was, now that I think about it. Good Jewish mother. Uh, when I was four years of age, I have this vivid memory of her kneeling beside my bed and leading me to Christ. I don't remember anything else that happened when I was four, but I, I remember that. And I couldn't read at the time, but I was told in later years, and it, I, I remember her writing something uh, in the margin of a little basket weave Bible that someone had given me. I am his and he is mine. And I'm really thankful for that 
for that heritage. You know, even though there were some years when I, uh, I didn't walk with the Lord, yet I had that those roots. I couldn't couldn't get away from them. I still remember at night coming home, and regardless of what I'd been doing, I I had to read a chapter in the Bible, and I had to pray before I went to bed. It was just incredible. I couldn't uproot myself. Timothy had that kind of uh, origins. And one day he was sitting at Paul's feet while he taught the scriptures, and he realized from his Old Testament background that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and he, he embraced Christ and got a whole new start in life. Uh, six or seven years later, Paul came back through that region and found that Timothy had grown up in a lot of ways. He was, by this time, probably in his late teens. It's difficult to date Timothy. Paul refers to him 15 years after that event as a young man, but it's, you know, from a standpoint of a 61-year-old man like Pete, Paul, and myself, everybody under 40 is young. And... Uh, but he was probably in his late teens. and He'd grown up in a lot of ways, not only physically, emotionally, intellectually, but spiritually. He said of Timothy, a good report of the people in, in Lystra. And Paul invited him to, to uh, share his life with him. Spent the next 20, 25 years with Timothy, traveling all over the world. You know, Paul was an incredible man. He, the, the 12 apostles were apostles to the... Uh, to the Jewish world, to Israel. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. He carried, like Atlas, he carried the Gentile world on his shoulder. That man went from uh, what we call Turkey today, probably to the British Isles in 25 years, planting churches all over the known world. Great cosmopolitan centers of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's about 2,400, 2,500 miles across. And it's a big piece of... The landscape that Paul just dotted that place with, with churches, left hope behind in a world that was without God and, and without hope. And Timothy joined him in that enterprise, went with him to into Macedonia, sophisticated, intellectual Greek uh, part of, of the world, planted churches in, in Thessalonica and Berea, uh, Philippi, and then on down into... Uh, to Corinth and Athens, then off to Rome. And he probably shared Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Uh, he, he's mentioned in, in Paul's so-called prison epistles that he wrote from Rome. This is his associate. So he's probably in jail with Paul during that time, under house arrest, actually. And he accompanied Paul perhaps on to the West when he was released from that first imprisonment. And later, as Paul made his way, uh, he was now in his 60s, and he makes his way up uh, through the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, through Crete. He left Titus behind in, in Crete, and he goes to Ephesus, and he leaves Timothy behind in, in Ephesus. Ephesus is a tough place. Provincial capital, intellectual center, religious center, huge temple to Diana there. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. Hard place to reach. There were a number of little house churches all over Ephesus, Timothy was charged with the responsibility of overseeing these, the leaders of these house churches, the shepherds that were taking care of these little flocks. Tough assignment for a, a man as young as Timothy was. Not inexperienced, but relatively young uh, in a day when, when age was venerated. And uh, that was his task. 
Now, the interesting thing about this book, 1 Timothy, is that it was nothing new to Timothy. Everything in this book, he'd been taught over and over again. He'd seen Paul in action. So why did Paul write the book? Well, it wasn't written for Timothy. It was written for the churches in Ephesus. Uh, It was to inform them that Timothy had apostolic authority in what he did. He was there as an apostolic delegate, as Paul's uh, pointy in that place, overseeing those churches. And the reason we know this book was not written to Timothy is because the very last line in the book, you know, it's Paul's sign-off line, grace to you. The you is plural. It's addressed to the whole church, not just, just to Timothy. It's a reminder to all of us that the only authority we have is the authority of the prophets and apostles. I don't have any right to tell you what to do. I can't tell you where to live and where to work and whom to marry. It's none of my business. My job is simply to declare what the apostles and prophets have said. And that was Timothy's authority. When he stood in his place as Paul's representative there, he did so because of Paul's authority. He's under Paul's ages. And that's what gave him authority. He was he had authority because he was under authority. And that's true of all of us, for that matter. Now I want to cut to the chase because we have communion this morning and I don't have a lot of time to develop uh, this first chapter. I simply want to, want to read the salutation, make a comment or two, and then move quickly into the first section of, of the chapter, verses 3 through... Uh, 11. The whole chapter really is a charge to Timothy. It's a command to Timothy and to the church. It has to do with, with prohibiting certain people from teaching. Interesting. We'll talk about that in a, in a moment. First he issues a command, then he illustrates the principle through his own life, and then he returns again to the command. That's the whole first chapter. If you want a, if you want a title to the first chapter, it's the charge to Timothy. But he begins with a salutation. If you opened any letter in the first century and read the salutation, it would be very similar. A to be greeting. Here Paul pours his salutation full of Christian content. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. We ask ourselves, why would he have to Come down so hard on his authority as an apostle. Timothy knew he was an apostle. Well, because Paul wasn't writing this to Timothy. He was writing it to the church. He wanted to establish again who he was. Normally, he describes himself as an apostle by the will of God. Here, he's an apostle by the command of God. He had no other option. Just underlines, underscores his apostolic authority. Came from God, his Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy. My true, the word means legitimate, child. Timothy was his spiritual son. His child in the faith. Grace and then you know, the, the greeter, the one greeted, and then the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is for the worthless. Mercy is for the helpless. Uh, peace is for the restless. And then he plunges into his argument. Verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths 
in endless genealogies. The word actually means traditions. It's not a list of names, but rather the origins of, of people. The uh, word basically means traditions, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering God's provision, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Now, Paul begins uh, this uh, book by telling Timothy to tell certain people not to teach anymore. And we ask ourselves, who are these people and what are they doing that's, that's so wrong? Uh, teaching is one of the gifts given to the church, one of many. Uh, it's a significant gift. Why hinder certain people that want to teach? Well, apparently, they're either teaching the wrong things or they're teaching in the wrong way. Now, I simply want, I want to make some observations and then, and then draw a conclusion. The first uh, thing I want you to notice is that the command is to not teach strange doctrines. Paul actually coins a word here. They can't find this word any other place. It seems to be unique. with It's a made-up word. It really means to teach other. That's what it's, if you just take it at its basic level, teach other. Teach something different. It does not necessarily mean to teach heresy. It can have the idea of teaching in a different way. So just keep that in mind as we, as we move through these other observations that, that these people are not necessarily heretics. They, they could be orthodox as all get out. They could be teaching everything that we, that we believe, everything we have in our doctrinal statement, but there's something wrong. They're missing the mark here in some way. The second thing he says is, is, is that they're to be commanded not to pay attention. The word means to obsess, to be compulsive about myths and endless genealogies. Myth, of course, is a made-up story. It's a fictitious story. And a genealogy, as I mentioned, is tradition. So they're teaching things that simply aren't true. Paul later in 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 6 and 7 says, If you point out these things to the brothers, same thing he's talking about here, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truth of the faith and of the good teaching you have followed, have nothing to do with godless myths and silly tales, which is parallel to the the idea of traditions, just silly, ridiculous, made-up stories. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. So uh, they're teaching something other than Paul is teaching. They're teaching it in a way that's different from the Apostle Paul, and they are apparently adding on to the Scriptures. They're teaching the traditions, uh, perhaps in this case Jewish traditions, as well as the Bible. And Paul says these things just give rise to speculation. The word is seeking, it's endless discourse, rather than, he says, the provision which is by faith, God's provision which is by faith. Now, Here's what he means by provision. If, if you have an NIV, it translates God's work. It's a way of getting God's work done or something like that. What does the word word mean? Well, literally, it means house rules. House rules. 
Now, all of us have house rules. You, you, you know, you don't post them on the wall, but, but you have a way of getting things done. We're not talking about a, a creed or a list of regulations and rules by which you govern your house. The word signifies just, you know, the way we get things done in our house. For as long as I can remember, Carolyn has cooked. And nobody permitted me to cook. And no one could eat anything that I cooked. So I don't cook. I eat, but I don't cook. But I clean up the kitchen. That's just the way we do things in our house. It's not a rule. It's not a law. She cooks. She sits down. I clean up, I clean up the kitchen. Now, we've done that ever since we've been married. Our, our boys all got up from the table when we were through eating, and we all together cleaned up the kitchen. That's just the way we did things. Now, that's what Paul is talking about here. God has a way of doing things in his house. This whole book, uh, Paul says later on, is designed to teach you how to live in the household of faith. It has to do with God's house rules. It's how he runs his house. We are his house. Well, how does he get things done in his home? He does it by faith. See what Paul is saying? Ah, there's another clue. Somehow these men and women whom he's to hinder are not teaching people to live by faith. They're teaching the Bible, but it's a they're teaching it in such a way that that element, the element of faith, is left out, and therefore they're not getting things done God's way. Okay? Now, faith is the way always, God always gets things done. There isn't any other way. That's the way we get into the family of God. That's the way we grow in the family of God. And that's how we're ultimately glorified. Everything is done by faith. Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive him? By faith. How do you walk in him? By faith. It's always by faith. It's by faith that we please him. It's the faith that we're, it's by faith that we're justified. It's by faith that we're sanctified. It's by faith that we're glorified. Only faith, Luther said, that was the linchpin of, of the Reformation, as you know. It's by faith that God does his work. Well, these people are somehow, they, they've left that element out of their teaching. Now, uh, Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love. These people, uh, their teaching gives rise to speculation Discourse, debate, uh, discussion, uh, arguments, seekings, but um, somehow they miss they miss the point. They they not only leave out the means, which is by faith, they they leave out they miss the goal, which is love. Okay. What what God is after in all teaching of the scriptures is people who love. Now the object is is left. Undesignated. It's deliberately ambiguous. Paul is thinking about loving God, loving people. See, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's learning to love God and love people. Jesus said so, that the whole law is summed up in these two elements. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Well, one of my uh, friends on Wednesday, in the Wednesday morning Bible study came up to me last Sunday. Uh, some of you know him, Dave Collins, and he said, you know, it's all very simple. Love God and serve people. That's what it's all about. That's what it's for. To the extent that our Bible teaching produces people that love God and love people, then then we're accomplishing what we've set out to do. But these people don't. Somehow it stops short. They stop at mere speculation. 
Now you'll notice that love is the fruit. The root is what Paul calls a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now Paul has a way of just piling words upon words in order to make a point. He's not saying three different things here, I don't think. I, I think he's saying the same thing three different times. What's a pure heart? Well, it's a clean heart. The opposite is a dirty heart, a defiled heart. Heart is full of sin. What's a good conscience? Well, a good conscience is a conscience is free from guilt. Look back on yesterday and can't see sin that you're justifying and defending and protecting. Sin may be there, you know. We know we're forgiven, and in that sense, we can always have a good conscience when we judge the sin and put it away. But a bad conscience is a is sin that we justify and defend and protect and we don't do anything about. Conscience is like a one of those lamps on your dashboard that light up when something goes wrong under the hood. When your conscience starts to hurt you, you raise the hood and you say, what's wrong in there? And you deal with whatever it is that's wrong. That gives you a good conscience. But a bad conscience is an unwillingness to lift the hood and take a good hard look at what it is that that's causing the pain. There's no limerick that goes, there was a faith healer from Deal who said, although pain is not real, when I sit on a pin and it punctures my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. <laughs> and, and, and the same is true of our conscience. We say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter if I do this thing, but we do it and we know it's wrong. And, and oh, my, we just ache all over at first. Of course, you can, you can quell your conscience after a while. But a good conscience is, you see, a conscience is free from the memory and and blame and guilt of sin. And an authentic faith is an unfaked faith, an unhypocritical faith. The emphasis here is on the the adjective that modifies it. It's an unhypocritical faith. Most scholars agree that that the word here that's translated uh, authentic or unfaked or unhypocritical is translated various ways in our translations. It means to speak out from under the mask. Our word hypocrite actually comes from that word hupo under crites, which is a mask. Uh, As you know, the symbol of the theater is uh, a couple of masks, one with a smile, one with a frown, designating the two types of theater that characterize Greek drama, uh, comedy, and and, uh, tragedy. Because in those days, actors wore masks. They only had male actors, so they played both male and female parts. So if they were playing a female part, they'd put up a female mask, and they would speak out from under the mask. Now, what Paul is talking about um, is an authentic faith, a faith that's real, that's genuine. There are no hidden pockets of sin, no dark corners of our life that we're shielding off from others, no alternate life that we're... That we're living, and we're not, on the one hand, uh, coming down very hard on on people that deal in smut, and we read pornography, or we're very hard on people that have an alternative lifestyle, but we ourselves are guilty of of a lustful interior alternative lifestyle. Say, and we're not letting that go on. We're authentic. We're real. We're we're genuine. That's what he's talking about. The people that are dealing with their sin are loving. They love God and they love people. See, there there is a righteousness that puts people off. It's hard and it's harsh. That's a you know it, it 
rubs people the wrong way. And I often suspect when, I can't be sure, certainly can't read people's hearts, but when people are like that, when there's this rigid self-righteousness about them, there's something, something wrong inside. There's some element of sin in their own lives that they're, they're not willing to, to judge. Because if we're dealing with our sin, there's a softness, there's a humility, there's, there's a, a gentle quality about us. There's a wisdom in our face that, that's inviting. It's winsome. Right? So this is what Paul is talking about. The aim of, of our teaching is to produce that kind of winsome righteousness, uh, a goodness. You know, you know, Mammy Yoakum says goodness is better than badness because it's nicer. But there are some forms of badness or goodness that aren't nice at all. He's talking about, Paul's talking about a goodness that's nice. It's easy to be around. Wears well. You like to rub shoulders with people like that. See, that's the goal of teaching the scriptures, he says. These people have missed the point. It's actually the word he uses. They've missed the point. They're going this way instead of that way. Well, what are they doing? Actually, they're teaching the Bible. He makes that clear from verse 7 and on. They're not teaching uh, some cultic book. They're, They're teaching the Bible. But they're teaching it in such a way that it is not producing the kind of winsome love that it ought to produce. What's gone wrong? Well, I think he tells us in verses 7 and following. Wanting to be teachers of the law. You understand what he's saying? The law was uh, the Old Testament. Uh, Sort of the general word for the Old Testament, but it also included the prophets. The Pentateuch, the prophet, all the writings of the Old Testament were considered law. Now here he zeroes in on the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that aspect of the law. But really all the Old Testament teachings on the character of God, excuse me, are simply an elaboration, an unfolding of the Decalogue. They just keep saying the same thing over and over again. This is the character of God. Be holy because I am holy. You find that in the New Testament as well. In the old Peter quotes that. Be holy because I am holy, see. So whatever the apostles and the prophets say is is a an expression of the character of God. This is what he's like. And, and Paul says, these people want to teach the law. But they're missing the point. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Ah, there is a lawful use of the law. What is it? Well, uh, it's to expose sin. That's the purpose of the law. It's to show us how awful we are. It's like a, a sterile spoon that's introduced into a glass with sediment in the bottom. And it stirs up sin. It helps us to see how bad we really are. Nobody knows how bad they are until they, they read the law. Paul said, I, you know, I, I was doing great till I got to the last of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. And Paul said, that one killed me. Because I didn't murder anybody, I didn't commit adultery, but I sure did want to. And that's the one that got me. See, that's what the law does. It just tears us open and it shows us what, what we really are. It stirs up all that sediment. Uh, I heard a story once about an elderly man that, that did not want the Ten Commandments placed on the wall of school rooms because he said it causes them to have so many bad thoughts. Well, that's exactly what the law does, see. It, it points out all the bad stuff that's going on. And it even incites more of it. It stirs up more of it in us. 
We discover things to be sin that we weren't even aware of before us. So Paul said, it's so natural to want things. I never thought of that as sin until the law came crashing home. And I realized that covetousness is a sin. To want something other than God is sinful. That's the lawful use of, of the law. Paul says that it's like a schoolmaster that just wails on you. Or he changes the analogy slightly in Romans 7. He says, like a stern husband who, who is difficult to get along with, and demanding, expression, the character of God. That's what the law is for. But there's no mechanism in the law to make you better. Uh, the law can't, all the law can do is say you should or you shouldn't or you must or you have to, but the law can't change you. See, that, that, that's unlawful. That's the unlawful use of the law. The lawful use of the law is to expose what we are before God. And uh, Paul says, uh, I want you to follow along with me in verse 9, realizing the fact that a law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Now, let me tell you what he's doing here. The Decalogue is divided into two tables. The first five statements of the law have to do with the character of God, our relationship to him. The, the last five have to do with uh, our relationship to society. And Paul is doing precisely that in this section. He is summarizing the law, but he's putting a little different spin on it. The first of his statements have to do with respecting God, honoring God, hallowing Him, loving Him with all of our heart and our mind and our soul, and violations of that command. And the last have to do with the last, well, not all of the last five, but at least four of the last five statements in the law. Now, Understanding that, let's look at verse 9 again. Realizing that a law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless. Uh, they ignore the law. And rebellious. They rebel against God. They're rebels. For the ungodly, those that don't revere God. For sinners, those that defy God, they sin against Him. Uh, the unholy, those who deny the sacredness of, 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 of God's things. Profane, those that defile God, those that take his name uh, lightly, uh, those who kill their fathers and mothers. Well, that's the, that's the fifth commandment. You shall honor your mother and your father. That's an extreme form of dishonoring mother and, and father. For murderers, it's, verse, it's the sixth commandment. You shall not kill, you shall not murder, literally. Uh, and immoral men and homosexuals. That's a violation of the seventh commandment. You should not commit adultery, which was given a much broader application than infidelity between spouses. It had to do with any form of illicit sexual activity, regardless of what it is. In this case, immoral men is simply the word for fornicators and homosexuals. Kidnappers, the word means to steal people, literally. It's used of those that... Uh, uh, would enslave free people and sell them into slavery. Uh, men who buy, buy and sell men and women. Liars. It's the eighth commandment, ninth commandment. You shall not, uh, you shall not, uh, bear false witness. Uh, perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now Paul does here what he often does in these lists. He just rounds it off. And he, he says there are certain things that are, that make you sick. 
The word he uses for sound is the word for healthy. And these are the things that, that make you sick, he says. And they're all contrary to the health-giving teaching. He goes on to say, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, he is referring to the law as it is interpreted by the gospel, by the New Testament. Now, I don't have time to elaborate on that. Uh, Maybe I can pick it up some in detail next week. But let me just say this. What is it that these people are doing? Well, they didn't realize what the law was for. They didn't realize why God gave us the word of God. They didn't realize that they were as bad as they are. They were thinking that the law is for righteous people, and we're righteous. We're doing all right. And Paul says, no, the, 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 the Bible, the teaching of the Word of God is for bad people, and we're all very, very bad. Say, well, I'd never do any of these things, but we would. Any one of us, given the right set of circumstances... We would be guilty of violating any of the uh, any of these uh, statements in the Ten Commandments. And what Paul is saying is this: the Word of God is intended to address our sin. That's not all it does, but it does do that. When we read the Word of God, whether it's the Ten Commandments, whether it's the teaching of the prophets, whether it's the apostles, what it does is reveal to us the character of God. And it puts us flat on our faces. That's what, that's what the law is for. The law cannot redeem. The law cannot save. The law can only shame us and drive us to Christ. And that's the purpose for which the Word of God was given. And when I was uh, in school uh, at, at Cal, we used to, believe it or not, study the Bible. And we'd sit around and talk about the nuances of the text and the niceties of the infinitive construct and and the geography and the history and the traditions that informed that particular text that we were looking at and I would walk away from that those classes day after day with a heavy heart because I knew that's not what the word of God is for but I must tell you that I think those of us who came out of a the Bible church tradition are just as guilty of it because so often we invest our time and energy in studying the text, talking about all of the traditions. I, I think of them as uh, uh, the, the, the folk traditions of Christianity, the, the interpretations that have developed over the years which are not in themselves informed by the Word of God at all. And uh, we invest enormous amount of time, try, time trying to understand the text, and we walk out of the Bible study, and it has not touched our heart at all. Because we have not asked ourselves, is there a sin here which I must confess? Is there a temptation that I should avoid? Is, is there some command here which I must obey? We simply skim over the surface of, of the scriptures and we do not let it touch our hearts. I remember years ago, a dear old saint standing in front of a group of us pastors and saying to us, I did not come here to miss you, I came here to hit you. And he did. He hit us right between the eyes, which is what we needed. 
And you know, I, 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 we, we sit in these Bible studies and we endlessly debate the issue, is Jesus coming before, during, or after the tribulation? And I, I agree with Ruth Bell Graham. She says, why argue and fight and worry how the world ends? Pray for the best, prepare for the worst, and take whatever God sends. I, that is wisdom. You know, we, we draw these charts, uh, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with trying to figure out what's going to happen, but we get our eschatological charts drawn out, and, and we know exactly when the Lord's coming back and how all of this is going to happen, but we don't let it touch our hearts. So what? So what? Or we spend hours and hours talking about whether you should immerse or sprinkle or dip or pour or dunk. And I ask myself, who gives a rip? <clears throat> I love that old tale about the Presbyterian and Baptists. They were having an argument and... Uh, a Presbyterian says to the Baptist, tell me, if, if you immerse someone up to their neck, are they baptized? He said, no. He said, if you immerse them up to the top of their head, are they baptized? No. He says, if you, if you put, push their head under, are they baptized? The Baptist says, yes. The Presbyterian said, I knew it all along. It's water on the head that counts. <laughs> and we laugh, but I, I'm telling you, we tie ourselves in nuts over all this stuff. Which version of the Bible will we use? Who cares? All of them basically are flawed. There isn't a single translation that's not flawed in some in some way or the other. Who cares? Use whatever Bible speaks to your heart. Some of you love the you know you 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 passed the Shakespeare class, so you could read the King James. I never could. <laughs> Others prefer modern translations. C.S. Lewis said that. Translations are like a suit of clothes. Child outgrows them. You always got to be changing them. But we get so hung up and so preoccupied with all of these little questions that uh, obsess us. Endless speculations which do not produce the love that comes from a good conscience, a pure heart, a sincere faith. You understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about letting the word address our hearts, the condition of our hearts. And then exposing those hearts before the Lord and saying, Lord, change me, change me. The law cannot change you, but God's grace can. We also hear in the word of that wonderful forgiveness that no matter how much we fail, we're, we're accepted, we're loved, we're cared for. And I mentioned before that Puritan women wore an apron and they had two pieces, they had two pockets. And they had two pieces of paper, one in each pocket. One said, I am dust and ashes and Full of sin, the other said, I'm the apple of God's eye. See, that's, that's, that's the grace that we have to apprehend. We have to understand that. We are dust and ashes and full of sin. The Bible shows us that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what we've got to do is let the word address our hearts. That's what these people were not doing. And then claim God's forgiveness. Ask him to change us. He's the, he's the only change element in the world. I want to leave you with one other passage. Second Timothy, our time has gone. And, and to save time, why don't we ask the servers to come forward while I'm reading this uh, final passage here. Second Timothy 2, 14. 
This problem was endemic in the early church, just as it is in the church today. It had to be addressed over and over again. This tendency to just endlessly debate, discuss, speculate, but to not let the scriptures address our sin. Paul says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. It's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Do you understand what he's saying? You can go to a Bible study and be ruined. Some Bible studies are not only useless, they're ruinous. Sit there and talk about the text and what it means and never ask yourself, what what is it saying to me? And walk out of there utterly unchanged. Paul says, therefore, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The word translated handling accurately means to cut straight to the goal. Paul's already told us what the goal is. It's love. So uh, there are two kinds of workmen. There's the approved workman who uh, has no reason to be ashamed because he uses the word of God to address the issues of life. And then there's the workman who has every reason in the world to be ashamed because he or she is is a fiddler on the roof. is piddling around with the scriptures instead of using them to, to speak to the to sin and uh, applying the truth to life. Paul says, avoid empty chatter, which is what that is, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. It'll even lead you into heresy, he says. And then in verse 22, flee from youthful lusts. Not talking about sexual lusts here, but he's talking about youthful passion. That passion to endlessly speculate about the meaning of things and, and never really come to grips with the truth. Instead, he says, pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's what we need to be pursuing. Righteousness, and faith, and love. Out of a purified heart. Letting the word speak to the defilement in our hearts. So that we deal with that defilement. We confess it. Put it away. Thank God for his grace to move on. And to change. And to be all that, that God has called us to be. Well, let's prepare our hearts for this time around the table. The Lord's table. Without the cross. All we would have would be the law that would simply drive us to our knees, shame us, humiliate us. But Lord, we thank you that there is a lifting up because you have borne our sin. In your own body, you took all of our guilt and shame and internalized it, healed it, sent us away from the cross, forgiven pure as the driven snow. And by your resurrection, we are given the privilege of being brought into association with a living Lord who who still, who exists within us to make us all that you've called us to be. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.